Good morning. What a awesome Sabbath. Wow. Right? I mean, it's, this is what it's about. It's about coming together. It's about seeing lives transformed. It's about opening up God's Word and seeing how this book that, uh, you know, some would say is outdated or archaic actually applies to our lives and, and really touches on issues that we face day in and day out. Man, this week has been one that's uh, been rather interesting. Uh, I might slide this down a little bit. Uh, not only was I chased by a dog, um, which is, I, I have the worst luck with animals. I've, I've shared that with many of you before. Um, I was actually talking to James Hamlin on the phone this week, and he was like, you know, how, we were talking about how many dogs I'd maybe been bitten by, and I had gone over the number 10, really. I, I really think I'm probably in the teens. Um, and he was like, you know, how, how do you get bit by so many dogs? And I shared with him, well, you know, when you kind of grew up running through backyards, um, trying to get away from people chasing you, um, you, from a time or two, you, you learn what's a nice fence and what's not a nice fence. The fences that have kind of the, the points on, at the top, those ones are hard to just leap over in one single leap. If it's a chain link fence, that's easy. Easy money. You can get over that so quickly. But if it's a wooden fence, it's a little bit more difficult. But sometimes it's the backyard with the wooden fence. You have to make a split-second decision. So this week I was jogging with my dog. Now he's a 106-pound Rhodesian Ridgeback. It's bred to hunt lions. And so I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm, it's my neighborhood. I'm out jogging with him. And out of nowhere, this other dog runs up and is no, no collar, no leash, nothing. And so I, I, my dog is a pacifist. I raised him following the Sermon on the Mount. And so I pulled him over to my hip, and I just took a step towards the dog, and it stopped. And then we just... I put on my best poker face, even though I know I'm, as an Adventist I'm not supposed to play poker, but I put on the best I, I'm serious face I could think of, and, and then I, we, we started to turn around, but the dog started to follow us, and so ever so often I would have to turn back around and take a step, and then continue jogging. Some weeks are just interesting, right? Some, some weeks just have some things in them that you'll just always be like, man, that was a, that was a, that was a crazy week. Some weeks are pretty standard. Went to work, came home, said hi to your family, played video games, standard routine. But every week brings us closer to one thing, and that is Jesus. That is seeing Jesus come in the clouds of glory so that we don't have to deal with jobs that we like occasionally, but not all the time. We don't have to deal with toxic relationships. We don't have to deal with sin. And praise the Lord, we'll never have to deal with sickness. And so, if this is your first time here, we're really a single-point church. You might wonder, why does Alpharetta exist? Well, we really exist to lift up Jesus. We are a church that's all about Jesus, and so we're glad you're here. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here. If you're tuning in online, we're glad that you've decided on Sabbath morning to worship with us. We truly consider you a part of our church family. Whether this is the first time you're tuning in, we're glad that you're here. And we're in a series, and we're journeying through these stories in the Bible— and seeing how just ordinary people are radically transformed by God's grace. But before we kind of get into our book today, the book of Ruth, let us just pray again. Father, we, we've prayed, we've uh, listened to some fantastic music. Lord, sometimes the, the Spirit just moves us to where we just start to, to hum, and then all of a sudden words start coming out of our mouth. 
because your gospel is just that powerful that we can't even restrain ourselves sometimes. And Lord, as we focus and zero in now on this story, we just ask that you would speak uh, in a profound way. May your word bring the news to our hearts. Lord, we don't want it to just be a, a mental ascent or, you know, just with our minds we say, okay, yeah, this, this could be true, but Lord, we want to be convicted at the heart level. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit one more time in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know about you, but I am someone that uh, I like commercials. I do not, I get mad at people who skip through commercials. I don't care for the Super Bowl commercials because I think that they're just humorous. I don't think that it's actually a good representation of what a commercial is trying to capture. Many of you might be like my grandmother that leaves the room or refuses to watch any program that hasn't been pre-recorded because of commercials. Many of you might be like that. Me, I want to watch the commercial, every commercial, because commercials tell us a lot about what major corporations are investing their uh, time and energy into trying to tell us what we need to have a better life. And so as someone who's interested in kind of the trends of culture, I want to know what is being marketed towards me. So there was this campaign that went out from Mercedes. It says, grow up, drive. Interesting. It's an interesting campaign. And in one of the commercials, no longer than two minutes, you have two couples, a young family, and then, uh, well, both of them are young families. Well, one of them is probably boyfriend, girlfriend. The other one is, a, is husband and wife, and they have a, a small toddler. And it contrasts the journey that these two families have, or two relationships, two pairs, two, you know, five people, as they're in a Mercedes driving across the West. Now, the West is a uh, kind of uh, known for the freedom that the West brings. And so their campaign is zeroed in on this thought that if you just kind of were passively watching, you might have missed, but it's really about how Mercedes can meet your need. If you have this Mercedes, your life will be that much better. That's the pretty standard MO of this advertisement. But in this commercial, the couple with a young child are bickering back and forth. You can't hear most of what they're talking about, but you hear some things like, I wouldn't be this way if you hadn't cheated. It's one of the few things that you hear as they're arguing and the child is in the back seat with no socks, crying. They're arguing first about where the socks are, and, it, and then it escalates from there. In the meantime, the other couple is just out having the best life imaginable. I mean, it's two models, two individuals that just, with not any care in the world. And then at the end, you have Mercedes with their logo coming up, and it says, grow up, drive. And what they've done, and all of the money that they've invested in this campaign strategy is say, you have needs and we can meet them with a vehicle. I find that quite interesting because as someone who, you know, I, I like vehicles. I think they're cool machines. They serve a purpose. But I know that I have more needs than what Mercedes can meet. I mean, is it going to come with a mini fridge that's automatically always stocked? I mean, some might, right? You're going to pay a hefty dollar for that. 
Is it going to come with, uh, if, if you're single, is it coming with a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Is it coming with a uh, 401k for retirement? Is it, what is it coming with, right? Because if it's just a vehicle, it can't meet every need. We have biological needs. We have relational needs. And in fact, Scripture points us to an eternal need. So if you're new to the Bible and you're kind of on the fence about Christianity, this is really a, a sermon or uh, a talk, if you will, on how God meets every one of our needs, especially in the most dire of circumstances. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. We're going to be covering all of Ruth, but we will not get to every single verse. And so I encourage you after the service maybe to go and, and read it uh, before your Sabbath afternoon nap or maybe, maybe afterwards um, or sometime this week. But the book of Ruth is really an odd book. See, it doesn't make sense in where it's placed in the Bible. See, the book of Ruth is the eighth book in the Bible. And you have the first five are compiled as this kind of set document, and they're illustrating the creation of Israel and how God brings his people out of slavery. And then you have them, uh, God raising up people to bring his children into the promised land. Joshua, Caleb. Then you have this time in, in history called the time of the Judges. And the book of Judges is perhaps the worst book in the Bible. It's incredibly depressing. You have what many, uh, what many opponents of Scripture cite is from Judges. It's this uh, lady who's torn to shreds. And they say, well, why, why would this be in the Bible if the Bible is about a God of love? The book of Judges is not a good backdrop because God's people go into rebellion time and time and time again. And so in the book of Ruth, which really could fit into the book of Judges, because it's just four chapters, the book of Ruth could be absorbed into the book of Judges, is happening during this time. In verse 1, it says, Now when it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons." So not only are we immediately introduced to main characters, you have Elimelech, whose name means God is king, you have Naomi, and then you have their two sons, but you're also introduced to a tragedy. The author of Ruth really quickly surveys this, or uh, maybe skips over formal introductions and just gets right to the point that there's a tragedy. Not only is there a family tragedy, but there's a world tragedy because it's in the time of the judges when people are just continually going after their own gods, saying, oh, this god looks like he can meet my, my need, and so I'm going to go and pursue that god. Now, when we think of idolatry, we might think of, okay, it's kind of silly that you would bow down to a carved image. We might think that that's kind of silly. We're Americans. We don't bow down to a carved image. But we might bow down to our job, thinking that we're superior because of our line of work. We might bow down to our health, thinking that we're superior because of our health, and our health controls most of us. Health is a good thing, but if it's the ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. Idols don't have to be these terrible things. They can be good things that we've made ultimate 
things. So our spouse can become an idol. Our vehicle can become an idol. We can even make certain theological points idols if it's not Jesus. If it's a good thing, but we've made it an ultimate thing, it's an idol. And so in a time of idolatry, we're introduced to Naomi, and she's lost Elimelech. But there's good news, because she has two sons. She has someone who can carry on her name, who can protect her in old age. She has two sons. Not just one son, but two. She's got it covered. But then in verse 4, it says that these two sons, they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived about their ten years. So now Naomi is aged. Then both Malan and Killian also died, and the woman, Naomi, was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her, her, her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So not only has she lost now everything, Naomi now has no hope at all, period. Nothing. She has no husband. He's passed. Her two sons have both passed. And so now she's in a foreign land with two daughters-in-law who are foreigners. She's, she doesn't, under, I mean, she might know some of the customs. Have you ever been to another land? Have you ever moved to another land? You have to learn new things. But no matter what, depending on the land that you move to, you might always stick out like a sore thumb. You might always be labeled as different. My dad is rather tan. In fact, I thought I was adopted for the longest time because my dad doesn't make sense when you see him and then you see me. In fact, when my dad would come and visit Carissa and I in Atlanta, everyone would assume that that was Carissa's dad, not mine, because he's rather tan. And after 9-11, it didn't matter what airport he went through, he was always, always randomly checked. Didn't matter. Randomly, always. Because he looks racially ambiguous. You almost couldn't pinpoint where he comes from. Well, it's because he's Pacific Islander. That's why. He's, he's, I think, a half Hawaiian and half German. But he got most of the Hawaiian skin tone. But he always sticks out. So Naomi is in a foreign land... You have Ruth and Orpah, but she hears that God is doing something in her hometown to meet physical needs. See, the famine that brought them to Moab is over. The Lord has visited his people. Naomi also knows that as somebody in her state, there is something afforded to her as a follower of Yahweh, or as a follower of the true living God, and it's found in Leviticus chapter 19, uh, verse 9. Uh, do you guys want to go one slide over? My, my phone is connected out here. So Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field, to its very border. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. See, God cares about our immediate needs. He knows that if he just only fixated on spiritual needs, that we would say, okay, God, that's all good and dandy, but I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. What about protection? 
If you're truly a God of love, wouldn't you care about those things too? Not just the, I believe in you, I've said the prayer and so I'm saved. Wouldn't you believe in actually taking care of me? Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced hunger, but I grew up with friends that could not afford groceries. In fact, one time we went up to the grocery store and we had come up with this plan. And I'm sorry for all those tuning in online, but it's past the time that I could be arrested for this. So we decided because there was a family and he had older siblings and there was no food in the house. So we said, okay, we'll take it upon ourselves to provide. This isn't my family. It's a friend's family, but I considered them family because it's my friend. So we go up to the grocery store and we steal two dozen eggs and a thing of chorizo. And we come back and we just said, we found the money on the side of the road. And so now we have breakfast because we were hungry. God cares about our immediate needs. And so he's doing away with this famine where now Naomi might have some hope. But she realizes that if she, if she asks Ruth and Orpah to come with her, then surely this is not going to be a, a good thing because they're also going to stick out like a sore thumb because they're Moabites. They're foreigners. They're going to be immigrants. But instead, you get this interesting account in Ruth chapter 1, verse 14, where she tries to tell them, after, after trying to tell them to leave, that Orpah leaves, but Ruth stays. Ruth chapter 1, verse 14, And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. I mean, how do you refuse that, right? How do you refuse saying, telling someone, no, 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 no. You're not going to be welcome here. You need to go back. You're, it's dangerous. This is the time of the judges. There's anarchy. There are tribal leaders that are taking things by force. This is not good. We're already vulnerable. You do, you do not want to come. You'll be an immigrant. Do not come. And Ruth says, no, 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 no. I love you, Naomi. Why would I leave? Where you go, I will go. If you die, I will die. She clung to her. Well, that's because Ruth might know that Naomi doesn't just have physical needs. We don't have just physical needs, but we also have relational needs. We, don't, we weren't created to exist in these silos. And there's this, uh, there was this experiment done from uh, Frederick II in the 13th century. He had this idea, and he wanted to know if, if you had a child and no one ever spoke to this child, nobody ever cared for this child apart from feeding and maybe the changing of diapers until they got old enough to be able to kind of become independent, he wanted to know what language would that child speak. He believed that it would be German. That was his belief. And so he set out, he took babies from their mothers immediately upon birth and told the nurses to not coddle them or take care of them, not to speak to them, but to just do the bare minimum because he wanted to see what language would they speak. And Frederick II, unfortunately, his experiment failed because these babies did not live into adulthood because 
scientists started to understand that we have a relational need, a need for love. But it goes further than just a relational need. See, Facebook came out, why? Because it was to help us connect. But what it's done is it's created the most disconnected society the world has ever seen. We don't even talk to each other anymore. We talk at one another. We don't listen. We just voice our opinions and then go eat food or, and then come back and see how many people liked our opinion. And we delete the comments that we disagree with or we block them. There's actually a doctor. His name is Dr. Dean Ornish. And in a book titled Love and Survival, he says, Love and intimacy are at the roots of what makes us sick and what makes us well. What causes sadness and what brings happiness. What makes us suffer and what leads to healing. I'm not aware of any other factor in medicine. Not diet, not smoking, not exercise, not stress, not genetics, not drugs, not surgery. That has a greater impact on our quality of life incidents of illness and premature death from all causes. He says, people who are lonely and depressed are three to, three to ten times more likely to get sick and die prematurely than those who have strong, or those who have a strong sense of love and community. People who are lonely and depressed are three to ten times more likely to get sick and die prematurely than those who have a strong sense of love and community. I don't know any other single factor that affects our health, for better or for worse, to such a strong degree. Love, we're created, not just relationally, but also it's in our biology that we need love. And Ruth knows that if Naomi goes back on her own, yeah, she might be able to glean of the field. Israel might have some statutes, some ordinances in place, for her to kind of get by, but just the physical need isn't enough. She has a relational need. And so in Ruth chapter 2, in verse 2, we see in a sense of the author's humor. It says, And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family Elimelech. I love this. This is almost like a, uh, oh, the Lord. it just so happened that we were here today. I mean, that, we got up. We knew we were going to come today. We, we got dressed for it. We prepared a little bit. So for us to say, yeah, it just so happened, I mean, what an understatement. Like, that's, right? So for Ruth to just so happen stumble upon Boaz's field, who's a relative of Elimelech, who is, uh, fits the criteria to be a redeemer, to redeem Naomi's family. See, in Jewish custom, there was this practice that had been outlined in Deuteronomy, where if you fell on hard times and you had to lose your land, you had to sell your house, you had to sell all of the, the family inheritance that a relative could redeem you. The closest relative could redeem you. Because God cares not only about your physical needs, but also about your relational needs. And so she happens to stumble upon the field that is a relative. Oh, man, whoever the author of Ruth is has a sense of humor. Because we know that it's not by happenstance. We know that it's divinely providential, that God is at work here. 
And so she shows up, and it says in verse 4, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? He sees Ruth, and she sticks out. She's a Moabitess. She's an immigrant. And he says, Who is this? Because she's been there gleaning. What courage on Ruth's behalf to show up to glean, to take advantage of an Israelite custom. And so Boaz, he says, who is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. You know, there's an interesting connection with Boaz. You might not be aware of this, but Boaz, Boaz's mother is Rahab. Now, Rahab was a harlot in Jericho. She became a part of the family of Israel because the Israelites were on the verge of conquering an unconquerable city, and she had heard of the magnificent things that God had done, and she started to believe in those things. And so she exercising her faith and believing that God could do that, that believing that God would accept her despite all of the, the terrible, sinful things that she had done, she becomes a part of that family. And now she has a son named Boaz who's a man of note who owns land. That's who Ruth happens to stumble upon. That's, it's his field. So surely he hears of this immigrant, this Moabitess, and he says, oh, wait a second. Wow. Her courage to stick it out with Naomi. Wow. And so in verse 8 it says, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go and glean in any other field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars, and drink from what the servants draw. Boaz is now taking Ruth and, and placing her under his care at the expense of himself. He's saying, look, there are other fields that might be more dangerous. You shouldn't go there. In fact, stay here. I have concerned my workers, those who serve and, and glean this field, to not touch you. I've instructed them. I'm, I am looking after it. I am taking care of you because of the courage that you have shown. That's amazing. I think sometimes we discount the courage that Ruth had to have to stick it out sacrificially in another land, a foreign land, as a widow who's already gone through tremendous loss just so that her mother-in-law can be taken care of. She could be killed going to a field. There's rebellion, recklessness, anarchy happening all around her, and yet she still goes. Man. Verse 17 in the same chapter it says, So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. Her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today, and where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Just so happens that she stumbled upon a relative. 
just so happens, just randomly, as if it was not by the hand of God. I can testify that sometimes things look a little lucky. Um, when I was in high school, there was a bathroom that I could always walk into and I could make a couple bucks by never picking up dice, but just letting other people roll them and I would call the number seven. But the thing is that so many people started to, to, to really try to catch on because the person that would be rolling the dice would be one of my friends and the dice would be loaded so they could always roll on seven. But I didn't frequent that bathroom often and so I could kind of get by with, oh man, Luke, you're just so lucky. And I kind of had this notion about me to where I was lucky. They thought that I, I just was a part of things and they succeeded. And so people just kind of discounted it. But then one time, one of, one of these, one of my classmates was very suspicious, almost like watching, watching me the whole time as my friend that he didn't know I was friends with would roll the dice. And he would watch me, and he would watch my facial expressions, and I realized this, and so I, I started to try to maybe straighten up a little bit and start acting like I was really engaged as if I could lose money here. Because I knew that he was going to roll sevens. I knew it. And so then I, afterwards, after maybe walking out with like $25 or something, I talked with my friend and I said, we, we can't do this anymore because we're, we're going to get caught and then we're going to get beat up because some of the people that we were taking money from have older siblings and they're part of communities that we don't want to anger. And so we, we said, okay, okay, okay. And we had this math professor that was teaching, well, math teacher, uh, that was teaching us about probability. And so we, we went up to him one time and we asked him, what are the chances of rolling a seven consistently? And he gave us the probability of, of what it was. And, and we said, okay, we don't like those odds. Those are not good odds for us. So we went home and we practiced with several different types of dice and the angle at which we would throw them, how we would place them in our hands. And we came back and we asked him if it was possible to come to a certain probability rate. And he said, nah, you know, we, not sure. I said, okay, well, let's try it. So with my, with my math teacher, we took some dice, some ones that we had found were better. We placed them in our hands, kind of in a certain way, and we started rolling them, and the probability was higher. And so now when we stepped into the bathroom, we weren't using loaded dice. We knew that there was some risk involved, but we knew that we had a better probability than just every other ordinary dice roller. In fact, last year, with my Pathfinder director, he challenged me on this. And so I said, okay, I mean, I'm rusty. I haven't, I haven't tried to hustle anyone in a long time. So let's, uh, you know, give me, give me a couple warm-up runs, right? So I took some dice that he had for, uh, I forgot what we were doing with them. And I put them in my hand and I, I you know, I, from muscle memory tried and I rolled a seven. I looked at him directly in the face, Robert Esco, hey man, I see you. Uh, and he was just kind of looked at me like he hated me. And he was like, do it again. I was, like, I was like, dude, I don't know if I can do that twice. Picked up the dice, did the exact same thing, tried to at least, right? Rolled a seven. Unbelievable odds. Because the next f seven, ten times that we tried as he tried to get other Pathfinders to come and watch, Luke pull a, almost like a, you know, who knows what type of trick, right? Could not for the life of me roll a seven. And then jokingly, just jokingly, I said, Robert, 10 bucks, I roll a seven. And I rolled a seven. I didn't take his 10 bucks. I didn't take... You know, but sometimes we look at things and we say, oh, this is by chance. 
when in reality there's been supreme intentionality behind it. Some things there are chance, right? God gives us chance because of free will. But here, there's no doubt in my mind that Ruth has shown up to Boaz's field to glean under any other hand than God's. And this is in the middle of a crisis because she's a widow. She needs this, and here is God providing for her. That's the God of the Bible, a God that provides for us. I think of the prayer of Jesus when his disciples are, are with him on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's kind of teaching them about the kingdom of heaven, and he says, Our Father, when you pray, to say this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then he says, be anxious for nothing. Look at the crows. Does not our Heavenly Father feed them? Look at the flowers. Does our Heavenly Father not take care of them, even though they're here one day and then gone the next? Will God not take care of you? God takes care of our immediate needs, our physical needs and our relational needs. But there's one need that only God can take care of, that no other promise, no other person, no other machine, no other car, no other relationship, no one and nothing on the face of the earth can meet. And it's an eternal need. You see, the book of Ruth is an interesting story. Because in Ruth chapter 4, as the story starts to wind down, as, as Ruth and Boaz have had this moment where it's kind of awkward because uh, Naomi tells Ruth to go and lie down at the feet of Boaz as he's sleeping and uncover his feet, which is kind of just like this weird story, right? It just, well, I mean, is she trying to help him get sick where she just lifts up the blanket and so his feet are, you know, exposed in the middle of the night? I mean, is this a practical joke? I mean, what is this, right? It's, it's such an interesting thing that we read it and we're just like, what is happening here, right? When in fact she would take the garment, she'd lay down at his feet, and she'd pull the garment over her. Now this garment, that word garment in Hebrew, is the same word in, in Psalm 91, when it says God's wings will protect us and keep us from everything. Under his wings will be our refuge. And so after this kind of incident where Ruth boldly tells Boaz that he's the redeemer, he's the kinsman redeemer, he's the relative that should be redeeming Naomi and the family of Ruth. And Boaz says, no, 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 actually there's a relative uh, closer to y'all than me, but let me go and talk with him. And they have this exchange. As the story starts to wind down, there's an interesting verse that points us to the real, who the real person, the real hero, or the real uh, object of this story. See, in Ruth chapter 4, verse four, uh, 13, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. Notice that Ruth has just given birth. But the women do not tell Ruth, Blessed are you. They tell Naomi. But it continues, verse 15, May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And then verse 17, The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to who? Naomi. 
Naomi. Not Ruth. Now hold on a minute. It just said that Ruth had a child, Obed. But now the neighboring women are saying this is a son to Naomi. So who is the story of Ruth about? Well, the story of Ruth is really about Naomi. It's not about Ruth. Ruth is a type of Christ that stood in Naomi's place. See, we have this eternal need. We have all, the Bible paints our, our uh, dilemma as we are sinners. We've all sinned. We've all made good things, ultimate things, and we've all chosen to rebel against God. We've said, we don't want anything to do with you, God. We would rather choose our own way of life. We've got it from here, Lord. We know the GPS. We know the, the GPS says to turn left, we're turning right because we just want to. Out of principle, we're going to go do our own thing. Psalm 2, you have the kings of the earth, and they come together, and they, they say, we don't want your cords, God. We don't want your instruction. We want to be free. And so we, as individuals with the gift to choose, we have all sinned. It's what the Bible says. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And so we are not in a good situation, friends, because apart from Christ, there is no hope. We can meet our physical needs. We can have stocked full of uh, fridges. We can have those Uncrustables. They're fantastic. Strawberry, not grape. Sorry for all the grape lovers. We, we can have our physical needs met. We can, in a very serious way. We can have our physical needs met. We can have a house. The coronavirus could not be affecting us. We could be able to sit at our house. We could work from home. We could still have an income coming in. We could make all of our bills on time. We could tithe. We could still be in a comfortable bubble. Doesn't matter, because apart from Christ, you're still not anything. Your condition is not changed. You're still, apart from Christ, a sinner. There's nothing you can do because you've already erred. Our relational needs, we can have friends, we can have community, we can, we can feel good because our sports teams win over and over and over and over again, or because our church knows our name, knows our middle name, knows the day of our birthday and said happy birthday to us. We can be the most beloved person. We can have thousands of Facebook friends that all agree with us on everything and you know, give us a ton of likes. It doesn't matter. Apart from Christ, you're still in the same condition. We have an eternal need that only Christ can meet. And we need, it's called righteousness. It's this biblical term that means a rightness. But it's not action, it's character. It's a change of our hearts. And only Christ can meet that. You see, the Apostle Paul in Romans, as he outlines this condition, he says this about a man that we've already learned about. We started our series with him. He was not unlike you and I. He struggled to trust in God. But the scripture says this about him, that he believed God and his belief was credited to him as righteousness. So he placed his trust in God, not in his own uh, his, his ability to accumulate friends, not in his ability to accrue wealth, not in his health, not, not in any of that. His trust was completely in God, period. For him, nothing else mattered but what God said. And he was willing, even though he was imperfect, even though his record is not one of perfectness, perfect obedience, Scripture paints him as a blameless man. Why? Because when you see his record, we see Christ's record. You see, Christ stands in our place so that when we start to worry, wait, are we ready? Are we really that good of a person? It's never been about us. It's always been about Christ. 
period. There's no if, ands, or buts. We don't need to make a clarifying statement about that. It's about Christ, period. One of my favorite authors, as she writes about this concept, Christ our righteousness, she says, uh, instead of righteousness, she uses justification, but she says, what is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I mean, it sounds good to have our glory laid in the dust. That sounds like, you know, kind of humility or meekness, right? But the part that stings is that it's something that we can't do for ourselves. No amount of white-knuckling, no amount of reading the Bible day in, day out, no amount of setting timers so that all throughout the night we're waking up and praying, none of that is what is going to get us into heaven. Those are great things. We should read our Bibles. We should spend time in prayer. But none of that is what is getting us into heaven. It's simply Christ. It's Him. And the good news is that He stood in our place and offers us that gift daily. Now you might wonder, well, if the story of Ruth is really about Naomi, then why is it titled the book of Ruth? Well, I find that to be a marvelous question because I think it leads us to to find the answer as when God sees us, who does he see if we've surrendered to Christ? Does he see our imperfect obedience or does he see Christ's? So whose story is our life really about? Christ. So the book of Ruth is about the redemption of Naomi, but we're Naomi. We've lost everything. We're barren. We're spiritually poor. We don't understand the deep things of God. We constantly need to rely on him. And yet when God looks at us, what record does he see? It's Christ's. It's not ours. And so the courage of an immigrant is a type of Christ in the Bible. Ruth is a type of Christ, showing us that God, in this small story, four chapters, not only does he meet our physical need, not only does he meet our relational need, but he meets our eternal need. And one day, we're going to get to ask those angels, what was that happy dance that you did when Caleb got baptized? I want to share this vision with you. What if, what if we acknowledge that we are broken as a community, as a church? What if we acknowledge that we are spiritually poor? What if we acknowledge that that there's nothing that we could do to earn the right into heaven, and we freely, under, not under any compulsion through you know, the twisting of the arm or anything like that, we freely fall on our knees and embrace Christ as our only hope, and we let that change our church to the church that when we get to heaven and we see Jesus, I'm going to out-sprint all of y'all. Maybe outfly all of y'all. I don't know what, what that's going to be like. I'm going to beat everyone here in hugging Jesus. That's a challenge to everyone. I'm going to win because I, I want to give Jesus that big of a hug. There's no physical distancing in heaven. I'm running up to Jesus. But what if when I let go, I turn, and there's someone that because I surrendered to Christ, they somehow, instead of seeing my very imperfect record, they saw Christ through me. 
and they're there simply because I let Christ shine through brokenness. But what if they hug Jesus, they let go, and they turn, and there's someone that's hugging Jesus because of them? And what if that person lets go of Jesus, and they turn, and there's a... What if, what if we set off such a ripple effect that when we get to heaven, I mean, I don't know how Jesus is going to hug us all, but somehow he's going to do it. And we're not going to be aware of the stories that we've helped change. But I guarantee you that if you embrace Jesus as being able to meet your eternal need, there will be people there simply because of the way that he worked through you. Through you. Man, that's some good news. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the story of, of Naomi. We know that the book is called Ruth, and we know that, that Ruth, there's so much that we could unpack about her life, and there's so much that we could unpack about the life of Boaz. But Lord, we thank you for Naomi, because we see ourselves in Naomi. Lord, we set off to just find answers to our needs. Naomi left because there was a famine in her land, and, and she went to Moab because there was going to be food there. And Lord, we, we do that thing all the time, where we have a need and we seek to meet it. But Lord, ultimately it is only you that can provide for our eternal need. And so Lord, we just ask that as we leave here this Sabbath. We know that, that uh, our service is not done. We know that we have a wonderful uh, song, a special music to be played. But Lord, we ask that as Sabbath kind of goes on, that you would show us how we can lean into your righteousness because there's nothing that we can do to earn heaven. There's nothing that we can do to earn our place in it. And it's not even really about earning it because you've just given it as a gift. It's really about just surrendering, about saying, Lord, we're not, we don't want to be in control of our life anymore. We want you to do it. We want you to take the reins, Lord. We're going to die. We're going to die to ourselves, and we're going to let you live through us. Lord, we thank you for Caleb and just the commitment that he made, the, the proclamation that he made, saying that he was not choosing to live life on his own accord, but that he was going to submit to you in all things. And so we, like all of the angels, we rejoice with him. Lord, we thank you for this church. In a time when many of us might be socially isolated because of this pandemic, we thank you that we, even though we might not be able to gather in person, that we still know each other's names and we can reach out to each other during the week. We can pray with one another. We're, we're a church that's committed to being a community. And so, Lord, we love you and we thank you for the work that you're doing here in the Alpharetta Church and to the churches nearby as they just try to minister to this world of brokenness. Lord, we love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.